Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, the Senior Science Writer here at TN, and today we're discussing microplastics. Today's podcast is sponsored by Perkin Elmer. I'm joined in today's podcast by TN's social media specialist, Zanjuna Alde. How are you, Zanjuna? Really good, thanks, Rory. Uh, how are you today? Yes, good. It's a, a really interesting discussion, and I think it's one that uh, is so relevant um, currently with lots of interesting research coming out on microplastics. Uh, but before we get into the research, I thought I'd just do a quick introduction to what microplastics are. Uh, well, a bit like people with a cough prior to 2020, microplastics are all around us, but we don't really pay much attention to them. Now, they can be classified as generally plastic particles that are smaller than five millimetres. That includes a lot of nano-sized plastics, uh, which are smaller than one micrometer. So these things get really, really tiny. And as a result, they can get everywhere. Now, investigations of these particles and their availability in the environment suggest that humans are pretty much constantly inhaling and ingesting microplastics. Now, they've arguably gained most notoriety for their effect on our oceans. And one recent analysis of the Mediterranean seabed near Italy found a jaw-dropping 1.9 million plastic pieces per square meter of ocean floor. Now, unfortunately, politicians and policymakers have shown a tendency to ignore issues that primarily affect deep sea dwelling fish. But further analysis has shown that the microplastic problem has now grown to affect pretty much all life on Earth, including the humans who originally caused it. As we'll hear later in today's podcast, plastics of this size and form will vary for various reasons and appear for various reasons, including the breakdown of larger plastics and also the use of plastic particles as abrasives in detergents, for example. Now, our understanding of microplastics has revealed that they span a dizzying array of sizes, shapes, including fibers and spheroids, and have complex chemical compositions. Whilst our understanding of how they might begin to affect human health is really still in the beginning stages, we have a growing knowledge of how they impact the environment. So following on from that, microplastics has been acknowledged to be a worldwide threat as a significant public and climate concern. And according to the UK's environmental impact on microplastics report, it's been estimated that a total of 15 to 51 trillion microplastic particles have accumulated in the ocean with between 80,000 and 219,000 tonnes of microplastics entering the sea from Europe per year, which is an absolutely astonishing amount. So it's no surprise to learn that we can't keep up with the amount of plastic being used and discarded on a daily basis. Due to plastic being an unable to biodegrade, this is why it's deemed to be one of the biggest pollutants of both our oceans and land. And sadly, Due to the sizes and colour of microplastics, they are commonly mistaken to be food by marine animals. And it's difficult to make predictions of the specific risk this poses to the animals. However, toxicity could be caused by the plastic polymer itself or other chemicals associated with microplastics once in the ocean. This then enters the food chain and once consumed by a larger animal, it could then have a knock-on effect to the entire ecosystem, exposing them to the same risks. And something you touched on earlier, Ruri, but when we look at human health in comparison, according to a 2019 study on the human 
and consumption of microplastics, humans may be consuming anywhere from 39,000 to 52,000 microplastic particles a year, with estimates of microplastics being inhaled to around 74,000 particles a year. So we can see this is such a prevalent topic and issue that needs both further research and discussion to push forward and make real change. That is a very scary statistic. Now, with all this accumulating evidence on the impact of microplastics, it's still surprised that it's become a really hot topic for researchers to try and work out where these microplastics are located, uh, how they can detect them and, and their effect on the environment and on human health. But one of the biggest challenges for those researchers is the business of simply isolating plastic particles when they're found everywhere and on everything. For today's podcast, we were lucky enough to speak to Ariel Bowman, a field application scientist at Perkin Elmer, on the topic of how microplastics can be detected and studied and how we can best manage the environmental and health impact of microplastics. You're about to hear our interview with Ariel in full. My name is Ariel Bowman and I am an application scientist at Perkin Elmer. So as um, myself and Rory, Rory have already spoken about, microplastics are now recognised to be such a, a global issue. Um, so what techniques are being used to detect and quantify microplastics? Microplastics analysis really takes two forms. There's physical characterization and then chemical characterization. Physical characterization is asking the question, are microplastics present in my sample? And then how do they look? What is their color, their shape, and their size? Uh, physical characterization can be performed visually with the naked eye, assuming the particles are sufficiently large, or with a dissecting scope. Fluorescence is another technique that can be used to confirm the presence of microplastics as dyes such as Nile Red preferentially bind to plastic material. Uh, and there are a few polymer materials having inherent fluorescence properties. Chemical characterization involves determining the chemical composition or chemical identity of the microplastic particle. And this is gonna require knowledge of the chemical bonds and atoms comprising the particles under investigation. Non-destructive techniques used for chemical characterization are going to include infrared and Raman spectroscopy. And then techniques such as gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, and thermal analysis can also be used for chemical elucidation, but their destructive nature prevents any samples from being retained for subsequent analysis. Great, thank you, Ariel. Um, what factors need to be considered when capturing samples to ensure they're representative of the body of water that you're trying to assess? A sample is really just a small subset or quantity of, of a much larger population. And so it stands to reason that the more samples that are collected, the more representative of the whole they're going to be. When speaking about bodies of water, the larger the volume of water that's sampled is gonna be more representative. And also you might need to think about uh, current patterns and then also the location of the microplastics that you're looking for. Do these microplastics tend to float on the surface of the water or are they located a bit further down? And then it's important to make certain that your sampling procedure is in alignment with your research. So where exactly are you looking for microplastics? Do you wanna investigate whether or not microplastics are present on the surface of an organism or whether or not the organism is ingesting the microplastics? So any specifics regarding the research goals can really help guide your sampling techniques. 
So does that mean, Ariel, that you'd need to, you, you mentioned a, a whole array of techniques that are used. Well, a number of those have to be used at any one time in order to capture all these, these different areas of microplastics that you mentioned. Exactly. So it, it really depends on the research goal. Um, so the example of whether or not microplastics are, are present on the surface of an organism. Uh, if you're just looking at a yes or no, you could probably get by with just a physical characterization technique. Um, but then if you want to know what are they made of, you're going to use a little bit of both. So you might use, um, you know, microscopy to find the particle and then something like infrared or ramen to determine what type of plastic that particle is composed of. So following on from that, um, I'm interested to learn, you know, do you use different types of techniques depending on the specific type of water that you are researching? So whether that be ocean water um, compared to, say, industry waste streams. So there's definitely going to be a little bit of a difference in preserving the samples. So if you think about maybe bacterial growth, um, any type of microorganism, they're going to be different between a waste stream and ocean water. And so if you are sampling volumes of water and you're taking with you a, a container of water versus uh, doing like an on-site filtration, you're going to need to prevent any type of uh, microorganism growth within that sample while you're storing it. And so that will differ. But when it comes to the actual analysis, uh, when you're looking for microplastics, you really need to isolate the microplastics from the bulk of the sample. So in terms of filtration, uh, the two different types of water will be very similar. Perfect, that makes sense. Great, so my next question is, what are the biggest challenges that researchers face when working with microplastics? Microplastics are everywhere. They're on everything. And so this makes it extremely easy for any samples to become contaminated during collection, transport, storage, sample prep, and then even the analysis itself. So when planning for microplastics analysis, it's extremely important to take a moment and think about all the sources of contamination. And this goes starting from the moment that you collect that sample all the way on to the final analysis. And so it's important to think about any time that that sample will come in contact with plastic or could be exposed to other microplastics. And are there any substitutions that you can use to avoid the use of plastic? Uh, for example, plastic centrifuge tubes are, they make a really good sample storage container. Um, and so they are plastic. And so you wanna look at, is there an alternative material. And then anytime the sample is handled for prep work, there's the potential for contamination. Microplastics are in makeup, in lotions, uh, and can even be shed from our clothing. These are all sources of potential contamination if care is not taken. For this reason, it's really important to have some type of control moving around the laboratory with your sample. If at the end of your workflow, the control is contaminated, it's really likely that your sample has also been contaminated. Ideally, any control implemented would be subjected to any of the steps that your sample is um, and would also undergo analysis at the end of the workflow. But something as simple as you know, putting a piece of double-sided tape on the workbench next to where your samples are being handled is a really good tool for just gauging uh, their exposure to microplastics. The next biggest challenge is going to be sample prep. 
researchers are investigating microplastics in so many different sample matrices. Uh, we're looking at coral, water, fish, soil, and you know, vegetation. And for any of these analysis techniques that were mentioned previously, the sample must be cleaned up. The sample as collected cannot be presented to the instrumentation for analysis. So how are you going to isolate those particles from the bulk of your sample? And as it stands, there's really no defined method or procedure for sample prep. Uh, every researcher or lab to a large extent is on their own to develop and optimize sample prep and analysis procedures. And this is an enormous task, especially for labs looking at a multitude of different of samples. Uh, and this is going to require reviewing the literature, experimental design, test runs, and validation. Uh, so really, the lack of standardized methods for how to treat these samples is a huge challenge for microplastics researchers. I've, I've got this image aerial in my head of uh, researchers sitting at a workbench when someone carts in a giant container full of dirt or soil and chucks it down on their research desk and says, clean this up. What Could you give us an idea of what, a, as you say, they're clearly not standardized, but an example of a, a workflow someone might take uh, to convert a, a, an environmental sample into something that could be introduced to one of these analysis machines? You've uh, so I've never worked with a, a soil sample, but I have worked with coral samples. And uh, we were looking at not only does the microplastic adhere to the surface, but also is the coral ingesting them? And so, you know, are they on the surface? We can wash them off, right? You do a, a rinse and try and get them off. You can also use uh, a microscope to see if they're, they're present on the surface. Uh, when it came to trying to get them, you know, out of the coral, um, it, was, it was difficult. So we essentially needed to digest or eat away at the coral material to get to the inside of the sample. And that, it's, it's tricky because you need to do so without damaging the, the microplastic particles. Um, so you need something that's uh, strong enough to eat away the coral, but won't uh, impact the plastic. And it's, it's a lot of trial and error. I imagine now you've mentioned the, the, the controls and, and, and care that researchers might have to take when a, a sample arrives in the lab, but is there a standardized protocol for sample isolation in, in the environment? Is there a, a direction from the lab to uh, researchers or workers who are isolating the sample and how they should handle it and how they should store it? To my knowledge, there's not a standard you know, overall. If you're collecting samples, this is how it should be done. It's, it's usually on an individual basis where you know, an analysis lab might have, you know, for samples coming in, this is how we want you to collect them. Um, but it, it's really up to the individuals collecting the samples and going out there and, and, and doing some test runs and, and seeing, you know, I, I've collected the sample when I take it back to the lab isn't contaminated. If it's not, you could probably go ahead with your experiment and collect your, the actual samples to be used for the analysis. So it's really, you know, trying different things and, and making measurements along the way to, to validate your process. Great. Thank you, Ariel. Now, you mentioned some pretty significant challenges to standardizing and um, making rote the process of microplastics analysis, but there's also a lot of initiatives that help microplastics researchers. Would you be able to tell us about some of these initiatives? Yeah, so again, one of the biggest things is 
you know, these standardized methods and, uh, you know, Pergama really applauds like those standard organizations. Uh, there's uh, ASTM committee D19 uh, has some really great method development efforts to come up with a standardized approach to sample preparation for water samples and then looking at identification and quantification of microplastic particles and, and fibers. Um, there's also a ISO ASTM joint working group that's, that's being used to develop more standardized methods, uh, looking more specifically at drinking water and groundwater. There's also a lot of collaborations. So conferences, e-seminars, virtual education networks, they all provide a forum for opinion leaders, scientists, and technology providers to share research best practices and, you know, and lessons learned um, so that we all benefit from the work that uh, each other is doing. And then to address uh, environmental microplastics research, Perkinomer has established the Microplastics Scientific Network and members of this network will receive communications on research trends, advancements in technologies and different analytical solutions. And our members receive content, articles, application notes, white papers, and even some demo videos um, to really share the knowledge that we have gained in this um, field. Um, there's also collaborations with researchers at academic institutions, regulatory agencies, really with the goal of developing applications and workflows and so that we are all on the same page. Brilliant. It sounds like the network is really beneficial to those working in microplastics. And also it sounds like that's quite a collaborative effort as well, similar to the ones you were saying about people sharing research and it's definitely gonna um, impact and help one another to kind of move these initiatives forward. So I guess my next question for you is, it's almost two questions, but when we do look to the future, how do we manage the environmental impact that microplastics are having um, both on our oceans and public health? I think one of the biggest things we need to do is increase awareness, you know, awareness that microplastics are present in the food we eat and the water we drink and awareness of just how common these microplastics are in our day-to-day -day lives and their overall impact. We, we need to start reducing the amount of microplastics entering the environment going forward. Um, so there, there are two types of microplastics. And so the first is, is primary. And these are microplastics that are intentionally manufactured to be small in size for a specific function. So not only do we need to find alternatives to these microplastics, but as consumers, we also need to be making smarter choices in the products that we purchase. In recent years, we have seen bans on the production and sale of microplastics, and this is a really great start. Uh, the next type of microplastic is secondary, and these are the result of degradation and fragmentation of larger plastic items, like trash. Um, so if we can increase the amount of plastic items that we recycle, that will reduce the trash that ends up in the ocean or in landfills, and that will also reduce the amount of microplastics entering the environment. Again, we're starting to see action take place with laws um, motivating re recycling of plastics. So going forward, we need to take action to reduce the quantity of microplastics entering the environment. We also need to think about remediation and dealing with the microplastics that have already made their way into the environment. Uh, if we don't reduce the amount of new microplastics, 
entering the environment, any remediation efforts will be moved. In terms of remediation, we're going to need to prioritize our efforts. Where do microplastics have the largest impact and how do we remove them without causing further harm to the environment? Moving forward, microplastics are going to pose a great challenge, uh, both in terms of preventing new microplastics from being introduced, uh, but also their removal. Equally important to this is going to be investigating and characterizing how microplastics are entering the environment, how are they impacting ecosystems, and then how widespread is their presence. And this all hinges upon the development of the technologies and analytical methods used to answer these questions. Thank you, Ariel. I, I think you raise a, a really important question, that issue of recovery of microplastics from these environments. And as you've said, just the, the very act of trying to isolate them for analysis is so challenging. I hope you enjoyed that fascinating interview with Perkin Elmer's Ariel Bowman and that's given you an insight into the challenges facing microplastics researchers. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode of Opinionated Science, but until then, please keep up with all our podcasts and microplastics coverage over on Technology Networks. Bye for now.